0: To on Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided and sometimes ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Marcus McKenzie, a teacher from South London who recently underwent prostate surgery after two years spent on active surveillance. Marcus is mixed race and was aware of his heightened risk for prostate cancer at the time of his diagnosis. He's here to discuss how this impacted his experience and to offer advice for other men. Marcus, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Good morning, Claire, and thank you for having me on your program.
0: Very exciting, and I'm looking forward to talking to you a bit further about your story. Well, Anyway, let's get straight to it. Um, Can you tell us how you came to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and subsequently placed on active surveillance?
1: Well, being a a man of mixed race in terms of Asian and black, I was aware of my heightened risk. So Mm -hmm. I've taken it upon myself to have a PSA test on a regular basis. Ordinarily, I think it was roughly every 12 months. There are some obstacles I've encountered at the doctor surgery level, whereby one particular doctor sort of suggested that I ought not to have a PSA test because it wasn't particularly reliable knowing full well that that's the only barometer or gauge one has. So I I had to challenge that particular doctor, and Mm -hmm. I insisted that I have the test by virtue of the fact that I was 50% more likely to develop prostate cancer because of my ethnicity. Indeed. She acquiesced, and I had the test, and then, unfortunately, the rest is history.
0: So, Marcus, how old were you at the time of your diagnosis?
1: I was around 55, Okay, just before my fifty-fifth birthday.
0: Okay, so you, on your own initiative, were, were regularly attending your GP to get a PSA test, and then you had this one roadblock with with um, the person you just described,
1: which wasn't insurmountable, but it then indicated that my PSA level had sort of doubled. Mm-hmm. Whilst it was still relatively low, it had doubled to four point seven.
0: Like within one year since the within previous. one year.
1: Mm -hmm. So it was was an obvious sort of next step in terms of investigating as to why it had sort of uh, doubled.
0: So then what happened?
1: Then I was, um, yes, they agreed. Yes, let's investigate this further. Where I live, I live in the borough of Croydon. So I went to, I think it's May Day Hospital.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I didn't have a particularly good experience. And I was advised that the MRI facility that they had was inferior to that of king's college
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i did a bit of research and um the mri is really important if you have to take your sort of investigation further because it's sort of it more or less pinpoints where any sort of abnormalities are indeed so I, spoke, I, I spoke to my doctor and they had no problem whatsoever referring me to king's college okay and then i had an appointment at as and beacon um, it's a hospital in Beckenham, basically, and I was put under the care of one of the consultants.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Um, so that's yeah. what happened after you had your imaging.
1: Well, this is where my the journey started, because I spoke to a very confident, very affable consultant who gave me what was an ultrasound. I had a, a physical examination and he seemed fairly confident and his precise words were this. He said, my, the size of my prostate and my PSA reading was probably commensurate with my age and ethnicity. So I felt relatively calm. And then I, off I went. And I think of a few weeks later, I had an MRI. And that's when I had that MRI. Um, I was really concerned about taking it any further because when you do a little bit of research or a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. So there's something called seeding. So the MRI indicated an abnormality, mm-hmm. and the next phase was for me to have a biopsy, and mm-hmm. I was really, really reticent about doing so, but I agreed in the end, because I thought, well, oh, seeding, what will happen? So I did then have a biopsy, and I remember sat down with my wife, and we were talking to the surgeon, and they were going around in circles, and uh, he one well, behold, you've got cancer. You've got prostate cancer. Said it's really, really early. And if I was going to have cancer, this is the cancer that would I would want because your Gleason score is very, very low. I, I started to cry.
2: Yeah.
1: I started to cry. I was absolutely shocked because prior to that I had no symptoms, no yeah. symptoms whatsoever. Yeah. yeah And so it really took me by surprise. And then you know, prior to that, those comforting words from the consultant saying, no, no, no. I doubt it very much whether you have prostate cancer. So after that, I was advised that look, it's really early, it's minimal. So, what we want to do is put you on active surveillance and we will monitor you every three months. How,
0: how were they monitoring you? Uh,
1: monitor, monitoring was essentially a PSA reading,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I'd go in and discuss the results and uh, just talk about my lifestyle. And again, I had no symptoms whatsoever. Mm -hmm. This went on for some time, I think for the first year, it was every three months. And then they suggested every six months. And I wasn't too happy with that. But my PSA level had remained consistent. On occasions, it actually sort of went below 4.7 to maybe 4.3. So Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the signs were promising, they were pleasing. Just prior to my consultant retiring, he said, Look, it's time we gave you another MRI.
0: Okay.
1: I'm going to jump back a bit because a biopsy is a nightmare. I didn't really go into that. I mean, do you remember what type of biopsy you had? This was not exact. I know it was, I had a a general anesthetic, so I was out. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up, there was lots of blood, and the nurses were looking at me and they said, how are you, normal stuff. And uh, I wasn't allowed to leave until I could pee. But there was lots of blood and there was an awful lot of discomfort thereafter Mm. for a period of time. Mm. But I recovered from that. So fast forward, um, I've been on active surveillance for coming up to two years and the doctor suggests now, well, it's time to give you an MRI. I go and have the MRI and what and behold, things aren't looking good. Real deep concern. So bearing in mind, my PSA level hasn't changed, it's gone down in yeah. actual fact. Yeah, yeah. So uh, MRI now indicates that there's a, a larger area, if you like, in terms yes, of... Yes, indeed.
0: Where, and where Marcus, um, was the MRI, that this, the second MRI that you were just describing, was that at the same imaging centre than your first one?
1: Do you know, I can't remember. I think it may have been actually at um, the, the hospital at London Bridge.
0: hmm Okay. Okay. And that was your Uh, second imaging after two years on active surveillance.
1: Yes. And then they told me, well, unfortunately we need to do uh, another biopsy Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just to be absolutely sure. So I I had another biopsy and this was, it was a local anesthetic. Mm -hmm. It's completely different, completely different. So there I was, um, my legs in stirrups. Uh, There's all these people watching and I was sort of questioning why, all these people here because you know it's a little bit indignant
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and they administer an injection on each side of your botox to um numb Mm -hmm. the area and they I think they put some sort of probe up my backside and then they proceeded to take the the samples Mm -hmm. at one point my legs started to shake uncontrollably because you have no control after a while and they were very Mm. comfortable and then I was able to stand up, my blood pressure didn't go down, and said, Oh, you're very strong, and da da da. I went home. And when I was trying to go to the toilet, that's when the pain hit me. Mm. But I recovered from that relatively quickly. And they said, we, we, We'll get back to you. I think it's normally in a couple of weeks. But uh, I think it was literally days, maybe four, more, I can't remember exactly, but it's four to six days. They contacted me and said, We need to talk to you. And when they do that, when it's so soon, you know that it's not good news. Mm. And um, uh, another consultant, because my original consultant had now retired, mm. so a new consultant got on the phone and uh, said, it's, it's, I'm really sorry, it's bad news, You're, the cancer has uh, enlarged and black men, the cancer tends to be aggressive. And I think they gave me a couple of options. It was something like six months of chemotherapy and then followed by another month or something of radiotherapy. And I, my knowledge is that I know that really wrecks your body. And I wasn't sort of keen on that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I spoke to the consultant and I said to him, are you aware of my ethnicity? And he said, no. Well, I said, I'm a black man. So what's your advice? He said, take it out. He didn't hesitate. He said, you need to take it out and you need to take it out sooner rather than later. Okay so it was sort of a fait complete. so I agreed and then I was put I was then referred to I think the, the surgeon's name was Christian Brown I researched him he's done umpteen uh surgeries so he, he's um I think he works in private practice and national mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. so I sp- I spoke with him um I think maybe a week later or so and he said to me look I'm not he's he just it was a matter of fact these are all the things that could go wrong might go wrong these are the problems that you're likely to encounter and um there's a backlog i don't think it's going to get any worse i think you'll probably have the operation in about three months shock horror so thereafter i lobbied i wrote to them and i basically said everything you have said to me thus far has been wrong I. i'm not likely to have cancer because my initial readings were supposedly commensurate with mm. my age. ethnicity, wrong. Yeah. Active surveillance. It's not likely to spread. A man of your age and fitness. It's not likely to get any worse. Wrong. Yeah. So waiting for another three months. Um. What was going to happen during that period? It could have break. It could break out of the prostate. Indeed. And, um retrospectively now that I've had the operation the the surgeon in in question had said to me you are very lucky because it was about to break out so all of these things everything was wrong so I had to lobby to sort of push for an earlier operation so I didn't in the end have the operation with Christian Brown they didn't respond to the letter that I wrote Mm. to come back to me and say well would you like would you consider going with somebody else which was an absolute yes I will And I still ended up waiting for three months and heaven forbid, you know, if COVID had got really, really bad because it was October. So I think we were sort of in the grip of our second wave. Yes. I might still have been waiting and it would have it would have broken out and that would have been a whole different story.
0: So you felt Uh, that was because you challenged them to to actually move up your
1: procedure. I, I, I think so. I was proven right. And prior to having the operation I got a second opinion at Harley Street because I wanted to explore focal therapy because obviously t- having a prostate removed has major ramifications in terms of urinary incontinence erectile dysfunction nothing mm-hmm. that any, you know a young or an active man wants to contemplate of so course. I was exploring all other options and um, alas when they looked at my x-rays or my MRIs yeah. and my um biopsy readings they said no we can't help you because you've got cancer on both sides of your prostate now so it would be uh, no we we would not uh, advise you to go this route and that was private so that would have cost me 13000 pounds mm. and it, I feel i have a colleague who was in a similar position to me to to me myself his psa reading was very very uh, similar, but his hadn't spread as much as mine, so he opted for focal therapy. And I just think, on reflection, that should have been an option. That should have been presented to me right at the outset.
0: Yeah, and indeed. I,
1: I wouldn't be here.
0: So, a couple questions. Um, the friend you mentioned who did go on to to, to have focal therapy, did, how long had he been on active surveillance for?
1: Roughly the same time. So he. Oh really it didn't spread yeah but uh, it was still there and rather than just wait because I think all things eventually go south of, you know cancer you've got cancer yeah. They, don't, yeah they tell you nothing about your lifestyle it's just get out there and live and enjoy your life and
2: yeah
1: you do a little bit of research in terms of that living that one does can impact your cancer in terms of your diet whether it's sugar alcohol there's all manner of things that can impact the um, progression of the cancer they don't mm-hmm. give you- along those lines so I I think it was real foolhardy uh, advice and I I suggest that it wasn't offered to me because it was probably a cost my friend uh, fortunately had private medical health care so he was able to have that operation privately
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas
1: that was an option for me I would have paid for it privately but it was too late I know of another friend who upon diagnosis many many years ago he opted to have brachytherapy where he had a radioactive pellet inserted. It solved his problem. That yeah. option was given to me. I was given all these assurances. I, I was a little bit complacent possibly, but I felt very relaxed. Hey, mm. this is fine. Mm-hmm. it's not getting any worse. And I just got on with my life. And mm-hmm. uh, how wrong was I?
0: So you feel that you were very much let down by the active surveillance program?
1: Yes, I I, I think one should be given the option to sort of have a look at the cancer there and then, here are your options, this is what you can actually do. And every time I mentioned it, it wasn't, oh, well, it depends on the size of your prostate, whether you can go this particular route. So it was always sort of pushed to one side. And I genuinely feel that's a a function of cost.
0: It's interesting because, you know, active surveillance really places... Uh, considerable obligations and responsibilities on on both parties, patient and doctor. Did you feel that these obligations were not
1: met? I think they were going down a particular path that um, is prescribed for them to some extent, because there are a lot of men in that surgery that are being sort of actively monitored. And I suppose if they offered everyone an early intervention, it would sort of the budget would go up significantly. Mm. From my understanding, it's pretty successful early intervention in terms of focus therapy brachytherapy
2: yeah
1: and I just uh I'm very regretful that I wasn't afforded that option
0: yeah and so what was the way you found out about it through the friend who you mentioned earlier who actually underwent no I, it?
1: I, I did a bit of research you did. I, I did yeah I did a bit of research and um as I said I did get a second opinion I paid for that second opinion yeah and at that time I was fortunate enough I had thirteen thousand pounds in the bank which I would have paid I would have paid for my um, treatment myself it wasn't an option because post-surgery i'm living with the reality of what happens after you have your prostate out
0: yeah do you feel you were counseled well on all of those side effects i mean i know you you obviously have been doing a lot of your own research all along but in looking back do you feel that you were given the sort of counseling and support for those those side effects
1: it was there and i haven't really joined the group as such because i think it's a reality it's yeah. what's going to happen, and it's how best you manage it, yeah. and how best you sort of uh, rehabilitate yourself. I mean, I've I've trained all of my life, so I'm disciplined in many respects, mm-hmm. and my rehabilitation is going quite well. But mm-hmm. I'm not there. I'm under no illusions. But I'm I'm disciplined enough to continue mm-hmm. doing what I need to do to. I'll never be where I was because I'm. I am now infertile, but that didn't bother me because I don't want any more children at yeah, yeah,
0: 57,
1: almost 58. That's the last thing that I want.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, Marcus, do you do you feel that your race played a role in the, the whole procedure from your diagnosis to ultimately your um, your surgery?
1: That's a very difficult question because I, I don't necessarily have the, the evidence to say that, that it did. But what I would say mm-hmm. is that uh, we know black men are 50 percent more likely to get prostate cancer. Screening should be mandatory. And yeah. mean, doctor's surgery should be writing to men of a particular ethnicity and age to routinely screen them. And I've heard it said many, many times. I, I know many men that have encountered the pushback from a doctor. Why do you want the PSA test? I mean, that level of ignorance is shocking Mm. and they they should be reprimanded for that. So I can speak to that because I've experienced that. Uh And and I think there should be a a national campaign where men of a particular age and ethnicity are targeted because Mm -hmm. it's a really avoidable cancer. And men stand a much better chance if it's caught early.
0: Yes, No. absolutely. So. Um, which I guess leads me to, you know, big question for you. What advice would you give to other men and particularly black and mixed race men on, you know, getting screened and, and, and managing a diagnosis if they ultimately get one?
1: Well, I think there's a phobia for a lot of men. And uh, let's be um, candid. And sometimes it does necessitate a physical examination, which is having a finger in your rectum. Yeah. Uh, the, what I'd say to those men that have a problem with that, you have no idea what comes next. Because if you travel the path, I mean, bearing in mind my diagnosis uh, was early, but I still went through a a horrendous time. It gets a lot worse. If you do not check yourself regularly, and if you do, heaven forbid, develop prostate cancer, everything that happens thereafter is absolutely awful. And I mean, I could go into detail, but I, I won't, but it was just a really, really bad experience. And apparently my experience was quite good, yeah. but I still found it. I mean, that was the most, I mean, post operation, that's the most traumatizing period, frankly,
2: mm-hmm. when you come home with
1: a catheter and there's lots of side effects that you experience, which no one tells you about. And it, very, very, very difficult.
0: No, I, 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 I hear you on and, that. Would you have anything specific to say to other black or mixed race men who are, who are given active surveillance as a, as a program to undergo?
1: Yes, I would. I'd ask them to sort of find out about alternative treatments. If you've got a cancer there, what can, rather than wait, what else? What are your options? Brachytherapy, focal therapy, don't wait. I'd, I would say do not wait. Push for early intervention.
0: Do you think I, that, um, you know, when you talked a little a few minutes ago about targeting screening programs, you know, particularly to Black and mixed race men, do you think that that's something that's realistic, that there are communities that this could be very realistic to um, benefit from that? I mean, would you have specific I, ideas?
1: I think it is realistic. And it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, a doctor's surgery, you, you there's your database, here's your age. You know, you know all the people that are at risk in terms of, as women have sort of regular screening for breast cancer or cervical cancer, mm-hmm. men need to have screen, screening for prostate cancer. There is a heightened risk, it's known, because my trajectory and sort of the costs associated with my treatment i'm sure is far greater than it would have been if i was monitored regularly but i monitored myself but there are other men yeah. that aren't being monitored and yes. that cost will come back and bite the nhs anyway yes so you know prevention is better than cure oh, absolutely you haven't spoken about diet there's a lot of food products that we shouldn't be eating so uh, as men Uh, Certainly men of a particular ethnicity, chicken, cheap chicken, I call it in terms of if it's not organic chicken, don't eat it. Mm. I mean, there there are lots of studies that sort of link that to prostate cancer and many other things. So you really have to examine your diet. I mean, I have a son and I've told him these things. Mm. His grandfather died of prostate cancer. His father has had prostate cancer, so he's high risk.
0: Well, Marcus, thank you so much for sharing this. I mean, this is incredibly helpful for for all men and and for all all men's families and partners. So I really wanna thank you for coming here today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you again.
1: It's been a pleasure, Claire. Now, if I can help to sort of uh, raise the awareness and I I, I haven't gone into the detail in terms of the trauma, post-operative trauma that I've suffered. And some of that is physical, some of it is mental it's been extremely challenging. And I, you know, if if a man can avoid that, you know, go the regular checkup route, change your diet, be active, stay fit, and uh, you can avoid all of this. But most importantly, if you do have to engage with conversations about prostate cancer, understand what your options are and don't be fobbed off.
0: Thank you, Marcus. Further information on active surveillance is available on our website along with the transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer, please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.